0: Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening to the Policing Matters podcast, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. Jim, last week we began to discuss um, some quality of life enforcement, um, particularly we were focused on homelessness, um, you know, when certain neighborhoods begin to go into decline and 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 people begin to feel fearful for going out on the streets because um, the neighborhood's kind of going going um, going to hell in a handbasket, if you will. Um that's when the notion of um, broken windows policing comes into play where you can begin to address low level crimes, quality of life issues, uh, to prevent um, their whole neighborhoods from becoming Cabrini green. you know, I mean, uh, this is of course, uh, attributed uh, to Bill Bratton, um, who this summer uh, retired uh, from his second uh, stint at New York City Police Department. Uh, but he put it into place in New York City. It persisted when he left. He went, I think, then to to Boston and then to Los Angeles or one way or the other. Served in three of the four of the biggest cities in America and created this kind of notion that you can go in and fix small problems and prevent big ones from happening. Um, Do you, you, of course, under the Giuliani years, um, that sort of stuff continued Um, in New York City that's becoming a little bit less so under uh, de Blasio. But, you know, the notion that this... this, um, this predictive, not predictive, but uh, a broken windows policing um, works. I think I think is quite valid, and it's 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 unfortunate that you start seeing some cities pull back from it, right? Yeah,
1: no, I, I totally buy into the broken windows policing theory. Um, it it came in it came about um, just after I I came in the police department, um, nineteen eighty two. Uh, George Kelling and James Q. Wilson wrote this article that talked about um, building community efficacy so that neighbors would look out for each other, that law enforcement would address low levels of crime to prevent big levels of crime, that if you had an um, industrial or abandoned building and one window was broken out, you better really quick it, quickly fix it, before several others because left unattended the other windows would certainly follow so that sort of idea was to keep an area clean keep a community and neighborhood clean to repair any damage to show to send a message a visual message to the local neer do that you care about your community and you will call the police if something happens Um, Around that same time, the the authors wrote about um, footbeats and um, officers resisted the notion of footbeats in communities. The communities themselves resisted the idea of having police walking through their neighborhoods um, all the time. And after five years, um, the results were that crime really wasn't drastically reduced. Maybe the needle nudged a bit, but both the police and the community or encouraged by by the ability to meet together, to see each other, to talk, to share anecdotes, to, to, to have this uh, relationship that they wouldn't otherwise have if you're just racing up and down their street in a radio car going from call to call. Uh, we have seen broken windows policing, though, morph into... Um, Probably the best example would be the stop and frisk mm-hmm. um, situation that you talked about in in New York, and uh, it worked quite well for Giuliani and Bratton, and not so well with the uh, De who uh, made it a a campaign. Um, Platform reform
0: it to was, stop it. It was practically his only plank in his platform. I mean, he really, he really ran on ending stop and frisk. And when he came into office, he effectively did. I mean, it, it was reduced by I don't remember, but something like eighty-five or ninety percent, right? And but it, it was a proven fact that when it was being done and done well, guns were taken off the streets, um, felons were being put into jail or at least being pursued. Um, Crimes did go down in New York City. I mean, Times Square, when I was growing up in New York, was a war zone, a place you could—I you, got mugged in Times Square once um, as, a, as a teenager. And today, it's one of the nicest places in all of the New York City. It's a wonderful—it's a delightful light show, and, you know, it's one of the safest places on Earth. Um, so it clearly worked. And so it's my my concern is that when people start vilifying the notion of broken windows policing and, and calling into question its effectiveness, uh, I think they're missing the they're missing the point because it is effective. It has proven to be useful in certain cities. Now I'm not saying it's for every city. Um, maybe not every administrator knows how to properly execute on it, but you know it's clearly been been productive in some places.
1: Right, and and. I think the critics will point out these um, tragedies that have happened as a result where the initial stop was made for broken windows policing. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the Eric Garner case, for for instance, individuals selling single cigarettes outside of a store. Broken windows policing says he can't do that. It's illegal. You take him on, you tell him to stop, you issue him a citation or a summons, mm-hmm. and that's that. But um, there's a confrontation, there's resistance, and now there's... Uh, a struggle that results in Mr. Garner, um, dying through asphyxiation by some variation of a chokehold. So if you look at does broken windows policing or community policing cause, uh, suspect deaths? No. no, but the, the resistance and the assaults on police officers may. Uh, so does that mean that we stop, um, people from selling, uh, fraudulent merchandise, copied CDs or DVDs or things like that? Do we just allow the open market bazaar? Uh, you know, I always want to ask the, the critics, critics for a list of the crimes they do not want enforced. And I'd really be curious to hear what, what they would perceive as victimless crimes. And, and when I toss this, this notion out to, to classes, I often hear that drug use, Graffiti, trespassing, um, prostitution, and other vice crimes are are victimless crimes. I just shake my head, and then I I try to point out examples where clearly uh, they're not victimless crimes. I mean there there are there are uh, multitudes of victims involved, not just from the initial act, but the ripple effects that that go back to families. Right,
0: and I mean, it, it, well, let's just talk about prostitution for one. I mean, t- tell the the trafficked. Uh, individual who is you know kidnapped or apprehended somehow and trafficked to an entirely different state to work for a ruthless pimp. Tell me that's not a victim. Right. And then talk about the the street on which that street walker is walking and the people in the homes and the communities that are seeing, you know, John's cr- coming through and again, this tra- transaction repeatedly happening it's a quality of life and your your neighborhood has gone to hell in a handbasket and people get rightfully righteously upset about that. And so when you start and and then you get into what we talk about in predictive policing, which is you you, you could see certain crimes if a, if a burglary happens in, in on a cul-de-sac, it's likely to happen at the neighbor's house sometime down the road because now criminals tend to operate in familiar areas and areas they know to be target-rich environments. So if you have the one quality of life crime Allowed to happen, you know, we throw our hands up in in in, uh, in frustration and say, oh, we're not going to bother enforcing that law. Well, guess what? You're going to cause a ripple effect of additional crimes of that very nature as well as other crimes of a more serious nature. And that's just scientific fact. I mean, you can look at all of the algorithms that go into predictive policing and, and tear it apart. You know, it's been seen in Santa Cruz and Los Angeles and all kinds of other cities where, you know, the, the predictive analysis of existing crime rates for a period of years can tell you precisely on which corner that that stop-and-rob is going you know, to get, get stopped and robbed, right? Right.
1: No, and you bring up a good point that police officers often go where the crime occurs. And if you look at predictive policing, if you go to the ComStat model, you'll put cops on the dots, right? Cops where the crimes happen. So oftentimes you'll hear at community meetings or criticized through the media that the police are this occupying force in certain neighborhoods. Well, if that's where the crime's happening, that's where we're putting the police. So it's, it's, it's this constant struggle with uh, educating, demystifying what law enforcement does, um, encouraging communities to call the police when they see something. Uh, the, the best efforts in, in community policing and broken windows is unifying the community and they're part of community policing. A lot of times people just hear the policing part of that and don't realize that there's a huge community component. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of things that the community can do on their own. They can have neighborhood watch groups. They can create phone or email trees. They can notify each other. They could use social media like...
0: Nextdoor Next is door. a great yeah, service. Yeah. That's,
1: that's the one I was going to point out, uh, to where they alert uh, their neighbors, if something seems amiss or awry, and and that's what you're getting to. The less contact that the police themselves have with those neighborhoods actually is the better, right? So in the old days, you knew when your neighbors went on vacation, they asked mm-hmm. you to pick up their newspapers or watch their place. And now we're in this sort of social setting where you might not know your neighbor. Uh, you may give them a nod, but you don't know their name. You don't talk to them. And, and so community meetings, neighborhood watch groups, things like that, bind communities together, bring that community efficacy back. And, and that's what we need. That's the sort of broken windows policing that we need to bring back to neighborhoods.
0: Yeah. Fascinating topic. One I'm sure that uh, we will revisit at some point down the road. In the meanwhile, um, do send us email about your feedback on whether um, broken windows policing um, is effective in your, your uh, jurisdiction? Is it something you, you're actively doing? And, um, or have you been asked to pull back on, uh, on things like um, the, you know, stopping folks who you, you think may be um, possibly about to commit a crime? You know, I mean, it's a, it's a terry stop, textbook terry stop. And you know, that's, that's been noted by the Supreme Court as being a perfectly legitimate law enforcement tactic. And, um, you know, I I look at New York City and I kind of do the SMH, shake my head. I just hope and pray for there to be no negative outcome there.
1: Yeah. And I know there are a lot of good examples out there. School resource officers are a good example of community policing. Uh, Cops read to kids programs. Everybody is doing a August 4th national night out um, every year. So what are you doing in your neighborhoods? Let us know.
0: That's it for this Policing Matters podcast. We'll see you again online next week.